Hello, everyone, and welcome to the March 11th, Tosca 3030. Today's topic is called Hot Topics, First Quarter 2020. Now, this is not a great, the best title. The best title that I've heard on Reach, obviously, Tosca was uh, one of the trade presses a couple of years ago, had March Madness, right? Remember that? But this is not quite March Madness, but it's been a very, very busy period. And so we thought we would do several topics, and we would have four of us, Four partners, Cal Hecton's Tosca Group, which are not all the partners in the Tosca Group, but a few of them, uh, give the presentations today. Next slide. That's your dial-in. If you haven't dialed in, it's too late. Next slide. So the fir our first speaker is Greg Clark, who is our youngest partner in the Tosca team, and I think he's given some presentations in the past. Next, next slide. There am I. Next slide. Uh, my partner, James Vota, who's also given some presentations. And the always popular Tom Berger. Next slide. So we have five topics for to you today. And we've actually come up with some very attractive titles for these topics. The first is the Tosca fiasco. So we're going to talk about, uh, you know, Tosca fee, particularly for Section 6, and the problems, practical problems that have arisen. Uh, and then we're going to have a presentation on Tosca Section 4, which you haven't heard about in a long time, and 8, Rise from the Dead. Uh, the next topic is the final countdown for CBI claims, uh, and then PFAS, for those of you, and apparently there's some 8,000 PFAS compounds in commerce, something of that nature, in important articles, meet their match, and then the last topic has to do with EPA's posting of guidance, what we would like to call guidance from Christmas past, does EPA remember its history. Enjoy today's program. Um, great. Next slide. Thank you, Herb. Uh, this is Greg Clark. I'm going to be talking about the Tosca fiasco as we've been uh, discussing. So this is an issue that we've been talking about for several months if you've been following us on either the Tosca 30 for 30 or on our blogs. Next slide, please. Um, we'll start with a little bit of an overview um, of what this is exactly that we're talking about for those who are uh, coming in uh, now. So there's a $1.35 million joint fee for substances that EPA is doing a TOSCA Section 6 risk evaluation. So the risk evaluation for the 20 high-priority substances that EPA initiated. Very importantly, and this is the key sticking point that you've seen probably a lot of trade press talking about over the last few weeks, is that all manufacturers and importers of these 20 substances in the past five years are subject to the risk evaluation fees. And there are none of the typical exemptions that you see under TOSCA Section 5 or Section 8. Uh, you see them listed here on our slide, byproducts, impurities. EPA has had a number of meetings and webinars over the past few weeks where this has been a key discussion item. And folks keep asking questions about whether things are exempt, and EPA keeps knocking them down. So a key point that we've seen come up recently is the raising that uh, substances that are produced coincidentally uh, during the use or production of other substances are still considered manufactured for TOSCA risk evaluation fee purposes. So everyone knows, I think, now that formaldehyde is a common combustion byproduct when you're burning natural gas. EPA said that that's manufactured for TOSCA purposes. So as EPA's current guidance is at this time, uh, those who are burning natural gas as part of their operations are formaldehyde manufacturers. As I mentioned, there are very limited exclusions and exemptions from this. Um, 
The key one being that if it's not a chemical substance, those substances that you are manufacturing or importing only as a food, drug, cosmetic, pesticide, et cetera, those key exclusions from the definition of chemical substance under TSCA. Uh, and then those substances that are truly export-only substances where you only manufacture or import that substance for export-only, you wouldn't be subject to the risk evaluation fees. Um, January 27th, EPA rele released these preliminary lists of manufacturers that they've identified using data submitted to the agency under the CDR program and under the TRI program. Uh, those are obviously both under-inclusive and over-inclusive. Uh, over-inclusive in the case of TRI because you don't have to be a producer of a substance to have to report it under TRI. And under-inclusive because none of these exemptions uh, that are listed here on the slide, which are uh, in place for CDR, those don't apply for the risk evaluation fees. So um, if EPA relying just on CDR data has uh, obviously missed uh, a number of manufacturers as the risk evaluation fees are currently uh, set up. Next slide, please. So what do you have to do if you're a manufacturer or importer? And this is a, a key next deadline. Uh, you need to file a self-identification with EPA if you manufacture or import in the last five years. That, that applies whether or not you're on EPA's preliminary list, and this is for each substance. Uh, there's an option to certify out if you didn't manufacture in the past five years, uh, but you were included on EPA's list. That's number two there, because um, you need to get yourself off of that list and so you don't end up on the final list owing risk evaluation fees. You also have the option to certify out if you manufactured in the last five years, but you ceased manufacture prior to March 21st of last year, and you promise not to re-enter the market for five years. Next slide, please. So this is the big change here from the last few weeks is that EPA announced an extension of the comment period and the reporting deadline. Previously, that self-identification was due by March 27th. Now it's going to be May 27th. The EPA hasn't published this yet in the Federal Register, but they sent out a blast uh, to all those subscribed to their mailing list. So this gives us an opportunity to engage with EPA on these critical questions about uh, determining whether you are subject to the risk evaluation fees, whether you need to file a self-identification or not. Um, we're working here at Keller and Heckman on putting together a consortium to ask EPA to clarify these questions or perhaps even to amend the scope of the manufacturers who are subject to these risk evaluation fees. We think that there's plenty of time for EPA to do so and to address some of these common sense problems, such as uh, the question of byproducts that have no uh, commercial purpose themselves, uh, de minimis quantities, uh, impurities in either mixtures or articles that are imported, in which those companies have um, at this time no idea whether they're present or not. That also gives an additional time for companies to think about forming consortia related to the risk evaluation. You know, all the uh, focus right now has been on who's subject to the fees, who needs to self-identify, but the critical issue is that EPA is beginning risk evaluations of these 20 high-priority substances. And if EPA identifies any unreasonable risk, they need to proceed to risk management rules, which can lead to prohibitions, restrictions, regulations of your use or manufacture of these substances. And, you know, assuming the worst case, an EPA provides no clarification, during this extended period. You need to also start interrogating your supply chain, determine whether you are in fact an importer or a manufacturer of these substances, if any of the articles that you're importing 
contain one of these 20 substances uh, because as EPA mentioned in the Federal Register Notice, it views failure to self-identify by the what is now the May 27th deadline uh, as a per-day violation so that it doesn't incentivize companies not to report and avoid the risk evaluation fee. Uh, so at this point, I'll turn over to okay. our next speaker. Thank you, Greg. And as Greg mentioned, we are planning to form a consortia to try to deal with some of these issues. Now, recognize the EPA understands that there are problems. They want to fix them. The problem is they need to come up with a, legally, a legal solution to do this. And we have some ideas. And so we're going to be forming a consortia to try to help EPA fix this problem. If you do not receive an invite from us by Friday, and you want to be on this consortia, please give one of us uh, an email. Send one of us an email, and we'll make sure that you're invited to an organizational call. Next slide, please. So this talk is on Section 4, which you probably heard of, haven't heard of in a while. We haven't talked about that in a great deal. And also Section 8, which I'll briefly mention. Well, Section 4 is EPA's test rule, testing uh, provision, um, and the new Tosca-Lonberg Act gave EPA powerful tools to call in tests. In particular, EPA need not uh, uh, proceed by rulemaking or by negotiated consent agreement. They can actually just simply issue an order. So really no process, uh, no real process, and then you have to do the testing. So EPA has been reluctant under this administration to issue any uh, testing orders. Uh, however, in response to the uh, uh, pigment violent 29 risk evaluation, which as you know has been heavily criticized by pretty much everyone, uh, including the, uh, the Peer Review Committee, SAC, uh, they decided to issue a test order to two companies, Sun Chemicals and BSF Colors and Effects USA. This is all public. Uh, and the order was issued under TSCA Section 482. Not only do you have to comply with the order, you actually have to pay for the privilege, and there's a fee of $29,500 next week. So what are the required tests? Uh, well, they're pretty simple tests. Uh, these are tests that were submitted uh, by the European REACH uh, manufacturers. The EPA found that there were either some problems with the way the tests were conducted or that the, uh, the European companies didn't provide a full study report, and therefore they can't use the information uh, that was in, uh, uh, in those studies. Now, these are very simple tests. Uh, water solubility and octanol solubility, which was the underpinnings of EPA's conclusion with respect to environmental fate and effects. Uh, and particulate uh, data, uh, particulate distribution data, which was part of EPA's assessment of worker exposure. Now, whether or not uh, these three studies will solve EPA's problems and make everyone satisfied with what was considered a fairly deficient risk evaluation remains to be seen. But nonetheless, EPA is going to get these three studies. Next slide. So just to tell you a little bit how this works. Normally, and this is the first time there's been a uh, Section 4 test order, uh, so they basically gave you four choices uh, to either develop the data by testing, to join a consortium, to ask for an exemption because someone else is going to do the testing, or to, to uh, notify them that you're not implicated because you don't manufacture this material, or that you plan to cease manufacturing or importing the material. So you have four options. Uh, for this particular order, they really granted two options because they know the companies uh, that are getting the order. And so the two options they had were either to develop the information uh, or to you know, basically get together in a consortium or some other collaborative effort to develop the information. It's a very aggressive schedule in this particular case. 
five days after the effective date of the order, you have to tell EPA what you're going to do. Ten days afterwards, uh, if, if you're a consortium, you have to tell them the consortium is formed. Fifteen days after the effective order, you have to give them a study plan. Thirty days after the effective order, you have to initiate the test. Ninety days after the effective date of the order, you have to submit the test reports uh, for the uh, water and optical solubility tests. And 120 days after the effective date of the order, you have to give them their test reports for particulate distribution. So very, very aggressive schedule. Obviously, EPA has talked to these companies ahead of time, because normally, quite frankly, unless you had a lot of advanced warning and already lined up labs, you couldn't possibly meet this kind of schedule. So I want to talk a little bit about Section 8, which is, I don't have an example yet because EPA hasn't used it, but I do uh, want to point out there's something called Section 8D, which allows EPA to call in unpublished health and safety studies. And, the, and, so, and also, there's no CBI protection for those studies. And think about it, if you're a company, U.S. company, you probably, and you have European affiliates or you've uh, registered under REACH and you've developed data, in, or data was developed in Europe, you probably have copies of those studies in your files in the U.S. Um, so if EPA calls that in, uh, and notwithstanding whatever you promised the consortia in terms of not turning over studies to third parties or the EPA or the government agencies, uh, you're going to have a real problem. So I just be mindful that Section 8D is out there. I don't think this administration is going to use 8D, uh, but if administration changes in 2000, January 2021, 20, you can expect 8D rules to be uh, used quite, quite often. It's really the only way EPA has a chance of getting this reach data, I think, and I think they're probably going to use that. I'm going to turn this over to uh, my partner, James Wotow. All right. Thanks, Herb. So the, the next item we're talking about is for development uh, with uh, the CBI. One of the uh, one of the other issues that the, the TOSC amendments were sort of directed at was sort of a perception, at least, that there are a lot of CPI claims for chemical identity that were stale or otherwise sort of unwarranted. And so it said that uh, they uh, created a process for all those sort of existing CBI claims to be reviewed. And it was tied to the inventory reset process so that as companies uh, notified EPA of, of the active chemicals that they were using or manufacturing or processing, if they had CBI claims, they had to reassert those. And then uh, the statute would put them on a, on, a, on a schedule to be set by EPA for actually providing the substantiation, sort of the justification showing that uh, it, was, it was appropriate to keep those names uh, confidential because it would cause competitive harm to, to the company. So, um, it, and then the deal was so the EPA, you know, companies would be put on a schedule to provide the substantiation. EPA then would, within five years, substantively review um, all of those, each of those uh, substantiations and make judgments and those that were uh, sort of sufficient then would get 10 years of protection. It wouldn't resubstantiate for another 10 years, and the others would be put on the, on the public inventory. So, what, uh, so this, this rule that came out last week is, is the final rule that establishes the schedule for uh, providing those substantiations. Uh, now, the, the, the schedule is a little bit complicated because the reset rule provided a number of ways to, uh, or at least timing options for providing your substantiation uh, where you're going to make the, the CBI claim. And for those who are filing Form A, so you are in the, sort of the first round of manufacturers or processors, uh, you, you had the option of either 
uh, submitting the, the substantiation with your Form A, um, or alternatively, you can wait for EPA to uh, issue its schedule and then, and then supply the substantiation on that schedule. And there are a lot of companies that, that did this sort of the voluntary um, early substantiation option. For Form B submitters, so anyone who was at, trying to activate something that was on the inventory but not on the active list, um, after that, you know, had to, they need, they're required to submit their substantiation within 30 days of submitting their, their Form B. Um, this all would have been fine, except it, it, it turned out that the, the substantiation questions that were in the inventory reset rule omitted um, a question that's required by uh, Section 14 of, of TASCA, and that is in order to, there are sort of four questions, uh, key questions that need to be substantively answered in order to maintain a CPI claim. Um, and one of them is whether, you know, if, if whether the chemical can be identified by reverse engineering. Um, and the D.C. Circuit, you know, um, after a challenge by the NGOs, uh, the D.C. Circuit ruled that indeed that question needed to be answered. And so uh, this final CBI rule, but there was a supplemental proposal in the fall, but the, the final CBI rule now requires those who provided early substantiation to sort of go back and answer those, uh, those initial questions. Obviously, those, those admitted questions on reverse engineering. So here, here is the schedule. Uh, basically, uh, for so groups, uh, the, the number of the groups here we've got uh, seem out of order, but this is the way they are they are listed in the Federal Register. So if you're looking at it, you can match those up. But essentially, those who provided early substantiation, either with their Form A or Form B, but didn't meet, didn't uh, pick up the reverse engineering questions, need to provide those uh, answers to those questions only by November 1st for those submitting Form A's and for uh, Form B submitters by June 4th, the shortest deadline, so just, just a few months away. Um, there's also an option if you, and I'll go number the last, if, if you were one who submitted a Form A and deferred completely, then your substantiation now is due November 1st. And then there was also an option for those who had submitted uh, substantiation within the last the prior five years, so since November of 2015, you didn't need to. You could you could sort of rely on that and not use not submit a new substantiation, but you would need to at least identify it with particularity to to EPA. And that needs to be done by November 1st. But again, you need to be sure that that substantiation addresses all the questions, including including the reverse engineering questions. Okay, thank you, James. And James has got the next topic mm -hmm. as well. But I just want to tell you that the substantiation questions, these cannot be uh, answered by boilerplates, uh, quite frankly. And frankly, honestly, the NGO sued to ensure that uh, industry has to answer these questions. And so I suspect that they will file Freedom of Information Act requests to monitor you know, whether EPA appropriately has approved these claims. You know, we help a lot of companies uh, with their substantiation. Uh, and in this particular case, I think I would suggest that you pay particular attention to how you substantiate these reverse engineering uh, yeah. claims. Yeah. Uh, James, okay. next topic. Right, right. So, so our next topic is, is on, a, on a new SNR uh, that covers perfluoroalkyl substances or a certain long-chain perfluoroalkyl substances. Um, this is, uh, you know, SNRs are used often with, with new chemicals. We see most of those. This, this SNR was uh, first proposed in 2015, but it was designed really to uh, prevent the resumption of, of past uses of certain long-chain PFASs 
that they've been voluntarily phased out by the manufacturers. So it was designed to prevent those from, from re-entering the market. And it was, it was notable uh, in, in part because it was going to apply to articles with the intent here that um, any imported articles that contained uh, any of the, the regulated substances would also be subject to the serum, essentially still a ban pending uh, review by, by EPA. Um, this, um, while that proposed rule was pending, and I should back up and just briefly say that there were a lot of comments on that rule and a lot, a lot of ongoing uses noted to EPA at the time that involved um, either articles or, or sort of uh, uses in these, these substances. We're using lots of uh, different industries, you know, aerospace and electronics and automobile parts, and a lot of, a lot of uh, ongoing uses that are identified to EPA. So while that, the proposed rule was pending, um, the, uh, the Lautenberg Act the Amendment 2016 came into effect, and it, uh, the Lautenberg Act added uh, a new piece when it comes to a uh, new requirement where EPA wants to exercise SNR authority over articles. So they're required now to make a specific finding that sort of justifies the, uh, the use of a SNR on an article in light of the exposure uh, involved. And so this, this most recent uh, proposal, which came out in March just last week, um, addresses really that additional issue. It, it uh, provides the justification uh, based on exposure, uh, but it, uh, it, 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 it uh, elected to do in this case then was sort of narrow the exemption in light of this requirement. So uh, looking only at circumstances or seeking only to regulate circumstances where the regulated PFAS were in surface coatings as opposed to other parts of an article. So, um, see, so that, I mean, in, in, with respect to this you know, particular rule, I think there are some, you know, some uh, a number of, of issues. I mean, there's a classic article issue: is the folks who are importing articles have limited ability in many cases to know whether a regulated chemical is actually in their the product they're importing, and it puts them at, at, at compliance risk. Um, after the rule is in effect, but it also makes it difficult to comment ahead of time to notify EPA that there's an ongoing use that should be accepted from the rule. Uh, there is, uh, these are other issues around sort of the justification. I mean, this is a case where the SNR is not regulating one chemical, but it's one class of chemicals with lots and lots of individual substances, and yet the justification that EPA has offered doesn't really distinguish among those, you know, those dozens and dozens of chemicals or the different kinds of coatings that may or may, uh, you know, may be more or less uh, likely to present um, opportunities for, for exposure. And then there are some, some sort of straightforward kind of application questions. You know, if, if there's a ban is on the coating, does that only apply if it's sort of on the exterior of the, of the whole article, or if you've got components of an article that have sort of surface coatings but not really otherwise exposed, you know, how does this apply? So I think there are a number of sort of case-specific issues that the, the, the SNR raises when we go to surface coatings. I think more importantly, you know, for this broad group, and it's certainly important for people who work with these chemistries, but more broadly, uh, I think what is significant is this is the, you know, the first use that's going to set the precedent for how EPA will exercise this authority and the kind of justification it's going to use whenever it tries to regulate uh, articles or parts of articles with SNRs. And in recognizing this, the agency has sought, quote, you know, robust, uh, robust comment on, you know, how it ought to exercise its authority. EPA has 
Uh, there's a precedent in you know other parts of the SNR regulations that talk about where uh, how it'll exercise its authorities under Section 5 for SNRs. But you know, they certainly have a, a lot of options uh, to look at. You know uh, whether they ought to establish de minimis thresholds, uh, whether they ought to be you know, how, 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 what the extent of the justification that they need. Typically, in, in the SNR, they don't uh, agency does not do sort of a detailed kind of risk assessment. It's it's much it's a, usually a higher level kind of analysis that supports these. Um, and also, like I said, the possibility of, of doing, um, you know, establishing a safe harbor for people who are importing articles but don't discover until later that it actually contains one of these things or reflecting the challenge with uh, knowledge. I think another, another uh, comment I ought to be thinking about is, is whether the agency ought to be asked to do a sort of a separate rulemaking on, on these issues uh, just because of their, their sort of long-term importance beyond the particular context which they arise here. So I just finished to say that the, the comment period for this uh, rule is on April 17th. Well, that's, that's remarkable. You know, bad facts make bad law. And it seems to me that the EPA using PFAS, which everybody will agree is maybe a problematic, to expand the snurs to articles is a very dangerous precedent. Next up is uh, our Tom Berger. Tom? Good. Thank you, Herb. Uh, yes, this is Tom Berger. In the next four minutes, I'm going to cover our last topic, which is EPA's new guidance document portal. Uh, about five months ago, President Trump signed Executive Order 13891 that directed federal agencies, including EPA, to make a guidance document, quote-unquote guidance documents, we'll talk about that, available to the public via an online uh, portal. And this was done for two primary reasons. First, and you might think it's the most important or the most obvious, uh, obvious, and that's to be transparent, right? So one of the purposes of this is for to inc increase government transparency. But the second purpose, which I, I think I'll discuss in the next three minutes, is, is perhaps even more important, is to make clear that guidance documents that have not undergone notice and comment rulemaking – also known sometimes as interpretive guidance documents or interpretive rules, are not binding, are not binding. So on one hand, uh, the intent was to make uh, was to increase transparency. On the other hand, it really is uh, essentially intended to, uh, in a certain sense, be deregulatory. And you can see the website here at the bottom, and that link uh, does work. Okay, uh, for purposes of today, um, you'll see, let's skip down to the third bullet. You'll see, what, a number of, you know, 10, maybe 10 other EPA offices, uh, but the ones are obviously that we're uh, most interested in on this call are Tosca and FIFRA. So if you look at the guidance documents, and I don't remember what the total number is, but probably 10,000 or so, about 1,500 of them are on Tosca and FIFRA, and about 450 of those are solely on Tosca, but there's obviously some overlap. So there are a fair number of documents here uh, on Tosca. Um, the uh, the OECA documents, second bullet, there are about 150 of those, and, and a large uh, proportion of those uh, deal with Superfund. So not, not too much on Tosca in there, although certainly some enforcement-related documents. Uh, last bullet, um, also under the, both under the um, OMB uh, document that I kind of skipped over because it basically just set forth some deadlines, and the executive order EPA plans to, is required to publish a regulation by this August that establishes procedure for issuing new guidance documents. You may recall, and I, I mentioned this in, in various presentations at various times, that in earlier versions of the Lautenberg um, Act, EPA had been required or would be required to issue guidance documents using full notice and comment rulemaking. Last slide. Uh, very, very important. As I've kind of alluded to, EPA indicates here, 
And if you look at the first bullet, and this is based on uh, the Perez decision that we'll talk about in the second bullet, EPA makes it clear that, hey, and, and I'll simplify, any any of these guidance documents that EPA is posting lack the force and effect of law unless they're authorized by statute or EPA incorporates them into a contract. You know, if EPA incorporates, uh, you know, some provision into a Section 5E order, if they say you have to wear a purple hat when you make this chemical and you sign it, Guess what? You have to make a pur- you have to wear a purple hat when you make the chemical. So, unless and until EPA does that, these guidance documents are not binding on the public because they have not gone through notice and comment rulemaking. Now, kind of a related doctrine or issue here was established in this uh, Perez case about four or five years ago, and this was a Department of Labor case where basically the agency had uh, changed several times its position on overtime using guidance documents. And the whole and, and Perez is very important because it held basically that hey EPA can rescind or modify guidance documents without going at any time for any reason without using notice and comment rulemaking. So one one way of looking at this would be if EPA wanted to, it could rescind every guidance document it just po- posted without notice and comment rulemaking. Now you need to contrast the guidance documents on the new portal with legislative rules, which have the force and effect of law and that must be promulgated through notice and comment rulemaking. So, of course, if you look to the CFR, um, all the the regulations we've come to know and love, like 40 CFR Part 720, those are legislative rules, and they're not subject to this this doctrine. Just very briefly, you may recall the LMNS Chromium Tosca Section 80 decision, uh, where basically EPA went after a company for failing to report results of an epidemiological study. And to make a long story short, uh, EPA failed to prevail because in its guidance documents, EPA actually had narrowed the scope of Section 80, and the court pointed out that, hey, EPA, had you not issued these guidance documents, you would have won the case or won the enforcement action. So Elementus Chromium is, is a, a, an interesting case, and EPA and emphasizes the point that EPA could change 80 guidance whenever it wants without notice and comment. Last bullet, uh, and I think this is really important. As many of you know, you know, I've been doing Tosca now for almost 30 years, and, and Turb and, and others have been doing it for, for many, many, many years. And there's a lot more lore and guidance, quote-unquote, on Tosca that isn't on the portal. What's on the portal are documents that you probably could have found had you, you know, gone onto EPA's website and typed in the word Tosca. So as you well know, there's all sorts of guidance on nomenclature. There's all sorts of guidance on 40 CFR 720.30H7. There's guidance and all sorts of back and forth on ceramics and mixed metal oxides, Section 8C. Of course, Section 8E Edward, because there are no implementing regulations. CDR, which is coming up this fall, uh, you know, has all sorts of details put in guidance documents. And, of course, exemptions, recycling, and successor issues are all uh, sometimes tried to be explained in guidance documents. So uh, that is the end of my prepared statement for today. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Next slide. So this is a schedule of our next OSHA 3030s. You could look these up online. Our next uh, REACH 3030, oh, yeah. So our next REACH 3030 is actually in five minutes. And we're going to talk about uh, increased scrutiny of imported goods into Europe. Uh, so if you're in, engaged in shipping products to Europe, I, you don't want to miss this. Next slide. So there is no April Tosca 3030 or April Reach 3030 because there is a, a global chem, and we want to make sure you all attend that. But so she will certainly be there. So good luck, everybody. Thank you for participating. We had over 150 people online, so it's a very, very good turnout. And uh, see you in April.
unless you're listening to the Reach 3030 in four minutes. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.